When the disciple Peter preaches at Pentecost, he proffers an unforgettable line about Jesus and death. He says death could not hold him. He's preaching in the middle of a street amongst, I assume, dozens or maybe even hundreds of confused and bemused people. And he says God raised him up, having freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And I love the way the King James has Peter saying it. It was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death had Jesus in its grip. But God wouldn't let it keep him in agony. To make it plain then, Peter says death could not hold him. Why couldn't death hold him down? Because God was holding him up. I think we can backdate this homiletical gem from Peter all the way to our passage for today. Well before Jesus is ever crucified, I want to say not only that death could not hold Jesus, but that death threats could not hold him either. Death threats were powerless against him. And we can, we can see a consistent pattern of Jesus thwarting the power of death throughout his ministry, worn through like a luminous thread as red as the letters of his words. And I want to tell you why that's good news today. As Luke tells it, the Pharisees come to Jesus to warn him. Somehow they have some secret intel, some secret intelligence. They're privileged to receive, and uh, they don't really like Jesus, but they really don't like Herod. Uh, so they come to him to say, look, you need to leave town. We're hearing that Herod wants to kill you. This is the, the same Herod, by the way. This isn't uh, the Herod at Jesus' birth. This is Herod's son, Herod Antipas. This is the same Herod whose daughter, uh, Matthew tells us, served up John the Baptist's head on a platter. So there is very recent precedent for dispatching with prophets. But with gravitas and insult to boot, Jesus keeps his composure he sends back a message with the Pharisees, one of my favorite lines of all, you go tell that fox. You go tell that fox. I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work. And this, line, this whole episode is chock full of nutrients. Uh, so let's enjoy it for a moment. First, Jesus insults Herod with a Jewish version of a cuss word. Like one of my teachers used to say, he cussed me now. He cussed me. That's what Herod's saying when, he gets, when this gets back to him. Man, he cussed me. Foxes is not a compliment like it would be in our day to say, man, he slides a fox. He's clever. No, then the fox is an unclean animal. And so was Herod. Herod was widely regarded as an immoral and unsavory character. Jesus puts him on notice for it. Second, Jesus says, I'm not only working signs and wonders today, but I'm going to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm going to read the paper. I'm going to get a good night's sleep. And I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to do it again. 
That is, Herod, you can neither sabotage nor stymie God's work in the world, much less in your little province. And third, Jesus says, on the third day, I will finish my work. Translation, not you, Herod. I will finish it. For death threats could not hold him. But Jesus became acquainted with death threats early in his ministry. His first sermon in his home church of all places ends with the congregation turning into an angry mob and chasing him to the edge of a nearby cliff. Can you imagine that, our young people? Youth Sundays in a couple of weeks. Can you imagine what that would be like for a young person to speak before their home congregation and the whole congregation chases them out of the portico and they're climbing the fence and trying to play Frogger across 240? What did Jesus say? Luke says he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Another Sabbath, Jesus defies one of the cardinal rules of his faith about working on God's holy day. He heals a man with a withered hand in front of all the angry leaders, and they were filled with fury, Luke says. And they began scheming with how to dispatch Jesus. Jesus knew this was happening, and he kept going. And after Jesus lets loose on the preachers and lawyers, calling them, among other things, fools, unmarked graves, and accessories to murder, they, perhaps somewhat understandably, began to be very hostile, Luke says, toward him and began trying to catch him. And then famously, after he kicks everyone out of the temple, they kept looking for a way to kill him, we learn. These are not the parts of scripture that make for easy reading, but in a mysterious way, I believe they do describe Jesus to us in a way that reveals him and his life, not just his death and resurrection, but his life as very good news. For death threats couldn't hold him either. We can point to famous peacemakers who endured death threats to preach and pray and heal. During the Montgomery boycott, Martin Luther King Jr. was receiving 30 to 40 death threats a day. And these continued like a constant droning bell until his assassination. Over a decade living like that. Recently, the peace activist Father John Deere recalls that the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh knew 1,000 of his fellow uh, Buddhists who were killed in the years of Vietnam. And Deere said, think about what that would do to you as a person. But I, sh I shudder to think about what the world would be like if these two and others like them had not endured the death threats to bring peace to us, to bring good news to us. And when I think about the things that compel me most about faith in Jesus, there are too many to count today. But there are a few that keep rising up over and over again. Central things. One, one is the way that Jesus opens the Jewish faith to everyone. That God comes to a particular man in history, Abraham and his family, and tells him his descendants are going to be numerous as the stars in the sky. Have you ever seen the stars on a clear night? All the beauty and the abundance, the life. And Jesus says, this, this is op I'm opening this up to everyone now. 
not just to the family of Abraham, but to every human being. Another that compels me about Jesus and his message is the, the way he shares it through parables, through stories, everyday life. The pots and the pans and the seeds and the family members, that's where God is. And all these things. And, and each parable wrestles me to the ground and I cannot get back up until somehow I've seen some new glimpse of the kingdom of God. But perhaps the most compelling thing of all about Jesus is that death could not hold him. Not in life, not even in his death. With divine grit, he sets his face toward Jerusalem to save us. And death threats swirling around him all the while. Only once does death give him pause, it seems, when he's praying in the garden. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but yours be done. If there's an artfulness to the Christian faith, then it must be the art of dying well. And Jesus shows us that dying well and living well are much the same thing. The season of Lent begins with an invitation to die a good death by leaving, living a good life. We may even say that Ash Wednesday, the first night of Lent, is something like a death threat, don't you think? Which is why attendance drops precipitously on Ash Wednesday. But when we come forward to receive the ashes and the sign of the cross, we get to imitate Jesus in his disarming death. We get to say to death, not only be not proud, O death, but I see you coming. You cannot surprise me. You may take away my breath, but my spirit isn't yours to take. And I will take this death threat in stride and bear witness to it throughout the day. And I will bear witness to it throughout my life. Since death could not hold him, friends, death also cannot hold what belongs to him. And to be sure, Jesus doesn't lead a reckless life. He doesn't seek death. But no one takes death more seriously than Jesus. As Paul tells the church at Corinth, the last enemy to be defeated is death. And we have taken death seriously too. We've been, along with the whole world, besieged by death and the threat of death. But since death could not hold him, death also cannot hold what belongs to him. And you belong to him. Each of you. All of us. We belong to him. And when death comes near to threaten you, whether by surprise or you can see it coming from a distance, know that God and Christ has already gone before you there. Even in the midst of death, you can be assured that God is with you to comfort you and deliver you. Even in his own death, Jesus, Scripture tells us, preached to those who had already died. Jesus in his death was active among those who had already died so they could be comforted by the good news that death would not hold them there forever. Strange stuff, isn't it? I mean, some of the weird, quirky stuff in Scripture is some of the best stuff. 
I know a lot of Baptists who don't even believe that part of it, that Jesus would descend into the dead or descend to hell and preach. But I love those parts because they're comforting. Those to come, but also those in the past could hear the message of good news. Death cannot hold me, and you belong to me, so death will not hold you either. So on this little resurrection day in the midst of Lent, may we give thanks that God has thwarted death and thwarts it still. May we give thanks that death's final destiny is obliteration. And all that it took away from us will be redeemed. And as we journey through our own pilgrimages in life, through those invincible chapters of our our youth, when death seems really highly improbable, but also in those times when we can feel death in our bodies and we cannot deny our mortality, and we give thanks that since death could not hold him, it could also not hold who belongs to him. Now these are heavy things. But we shouldn't shy away from telling them to our children. I remember uh, about 10 years ago after church, another church, Aaron and I lived in Durham at the time, uh, just chatting after church with a few, few other uh, young dads. Uh, and we were all trading stories about the bedtime stories uh, that we shared with our, uh, our little ones. And we were just kind of casually talking about the books we would read to our children at night. And, you know, it was all the usual suspects. Some would read Bible stud- stories. Uh, some read Goodnight Moon. Any Goodnight Moon fans here? Uh, Dr. Seuss, there we go. Uh, Dr. Seuss, you know the the usual suspects. And then I, I turned to one of uh, my professor friends and he said, uh, we said, what do you read? Uh, and he said, Martyr's Mirror. <laughs> Martyr's Mirror? I said, isn't that the one? It's like 1,700 years of records of Christians dying, being crucified upside down and drowned in the river and burning the stake. And he said, yeah, that's the one. Did you read that to your kid every night? He said, yeah, he loves it. <laughs> well, for, for my parents' part, uh, every night, maybe your, maybe your parents did this too. Uh, every night they, they'd come in and they'd say uh, this prayer for me, and I learned the prayer quickly. You know the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. I remember just being a little kid on the bottom bunk thinking, man, I hope I don't die tonight. (laughs) But I was pretty sure if I did, the Lord would take my soul. But oh, what good news it was when I for, for then I thought like a child, but, but when I learned to think like an adult, what, what good news it was to discover that God in Christ already answered that prayer in the year 33 AD. Amen.